Oh, well, boy, I, I was actually thinking this morning, first time I ever uh, spoke here at this church was 1990, so 27 years. Uh, many of you, the privilege to just know you and share meals with you and um, fellowship with you for all of those years, so it is always, without exaggeration, a great privilege to be here. Uh, one of the great joys I have as the director of church development and one who gets to travel around to various churches and I experienced this joy last night in, a, in just a wonderful way. And that is the joy of hearing your pastors talk about you and uh, fill me in on, on you and what's going on with you. Uh, and to talk about you with such faith and such affection. Uh, I, never, uh, I never cease to be full of joy. Uh, in those times where I get to meet with your pastors, I wish you all could be a fly on the wall and, and just hear them and the things they say about you when you're not there or when they're not up here behind a pulpit or on a Sunday morning um, because it is really exactly the same experience that you have now. Um, so I know you love this, but your pastors love you and they love this church and they're so full of faith uh, for um, the church. Uh, my one sadness this last year has been uh, that I wasn't able to come uh, for Matthew being set in as your lead pastor. Uh, I was really hoping to be here. Actually, we had it scheduled, and then it got pushed back, and then I couldn't do it when it was scheduled. Uh, but uh, I, I just couldn't be more thrilled for you all as a church that God has raised up such a young man in your midst, from your midst, uh, to now come and, and lead you. So thanks, Matthew, for, you know, it's not just that okay, now I'm the lead pastor. There were years and years and years of from when you were a young man to pressing into God and preparing yourself and God preparing you, probably unbeknownst, uh, for that moment. And I'm so grateful that God has you here, has you now with Chris and Josh doing what you're doing because I think you are the perfect guy to do this. Very appropriate. Um, last, thank, thank you to you all. Um, I, I, I am very aware, you know, people on the leadership team and regional leaders and pastors, uh, we, we tend to get a lot of pats on the back, but here is the reality. What makes Sovereign Grace Churches what it is, is y'all. Uh, the only reason I can travel around, do what I do, uh, is, is because it's built on the foundation of people like you who love the Lord, love God's word, love the local church, love your pastors and come every Sunday, week after week after week in the small groups and you serve and a lot of people aren't noticing. But I want to tell you something. Uh, the leadership team of Sovereign Grace notices, and more importantly, God notices, and we just could not be more grateful. Sovereign Grace is what it is because of you all. So on behalf of all of Sovereign Grace, on behalf of the leadership team, let me thank you for just your years and years and years of giving and faithfulness and just building this local church um, so that Sovereign Grace Ministries could actually exist. So can't thank you all enough for that. Well, open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 4, Gospel of Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. On April the 2nd, 
1739, John Wesley abandoned simply speaking in churches and began speaking evangelistic sermons in an open-air context. In other words, he took the gospel out of the church and he began to take the gospel to the streets. And that decision on his part ushered in one of the greatest revivals in uh, the history of Christendom. Uh, it, it was a significant day in the history of the church because it changed how the gospel got to people. The people didn't have to come to hear the gospel, uh, but the gospel was actually taken to them. And the reason I bring that up is because the text uh, for that sermon, of that first outdoor sermon, is the text that we're going to look at today uh, from Luke uh, chapter 4. But I, I want to let you know that the significance of that day, as significant as it was, pales in comparison to the significance of the day that we're going to look at here in Luke chapter 4 at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It pales in comparison because of, of this reason. Uh, at, at this at this moment, in this time, in this synagogue at Nazareth, in this moment is time, Jesus reveals for them, but now for us, he reveals for them and now for us, both the purpose and the power of his ministry. The purpose of his ministry, the power of his ministry, and not just the purpose of his power of his ministry, but the same purpose and the same power that John Wesley had back in 1739, and most importantly, the same purpose and power that each and every one of us has today in 2017. So let's read Luke chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 21. Luke chapter 4, the word, the very words of God. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, Father, we are so grateful to come to this dramatic moment at the very beginning of the ministry of your beloved son and our beloved savior where he reveals to these people but also echoing down through history reveals to us the very purpose for which he came and the power that enabled him, anointed him to fulfill and carry out that purpose. And because we are disciples, we recognize that that very same purpose and praise be to you, the very same power are ours. So help us today just to, just to hear the realities of the gospel, to rejoice in the realities of the gospel, particularly for those of us who uh, are, are saved, that these realities are our realities. And Father, help us to be even more greatly burdened to take this gospel to Africa and to Bolivia and to the nations, but to our neighbors and our friends and our family right here in Midlothian. So Father, grant us all of these graces. I need your help. We need your help. So Holy Spirit, please come and help. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I began at verse 14 because a little prologue is necessary. It's necessary for us to understand, you know, just how we got to this place where Jesus is at the synagogue in the Nazareth. And so we, we read in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus returned to Galilee, the, the area where he had been born, the area where Nazareth was. And uh, he begins to start teaching in their, their synagogues. He, he, he's traveling around and, and teaching and reading the scriptures in various synagogues. And uh, this is a general statement that, that's fleshed out for us in the rest of the verses uh, that I read. Now, we're not told how long this itinerant preaching uh, career was and how, how many months it had been while Jesus was doing this. But what we are told is by the time he showed up in his hometown, Nazareth, he had a growing reputation. Uh, if it would have been today, he would have been all over Twitter. He would have been on Fox News. He would have been on uh, the 6 o'clock news. Everybody was talking about Jesus. Everybody was talking about Jesus positively. They were glorifying him. They were, they were saying, man, who is this, this new guy, this new prophet who is around and he's preaching with power and he's preaching with authority. So everyone is talking about him. And you can imagine what happens when they hear that he's coming back to Nazareth. He's coming back to his hometown. There's, a, there's this local boy makes good uh, kind of idea uh, in, in this story or aura uh, about Jesus returning. And so he returns, and since it was his custom, it says, to attend the synagogue, he shows up at the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And not surprisingly, because everybody by word of mouth had heard about him, uh, they ask him if that day he would do the reading, kind of what we would call a sermon, do the reading and then, and then speak or give the sermon for that day. And the passage that he picked could not have been a more dramatic passage 
for him uh, to choose. It comes from actually what Chris read this morning from Isaiah uh, 61 verses 1 and 2. Uh, that was a prophecy about the coming day of the Lord, which we're going to explain here in a, a little bit more. So in this, Jesus does two things. He announces his purpose, he announces his power. He announces his power, he announces his purpose. So let's look at this announcement of power, uh, first of all. He, he begins his reading, we find here in verse 18, by saying this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we read throughout the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels that Jesus' ministry was uniquely marked by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Let, let's look back just a few verses uh, here in Luke. Flip back to uh, 321. 321, we're going to read 21 and 22. Uh, Jesus' baptism. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately after his baptism, uh, we read this in chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, so remember, the Spirit descends upon him at his baptism, and now he is described as being full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And then after those 40 days, Jesus returns to Galilee, and what we read here at the beginning in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So, so, so do you see right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's this emphasis on the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes upon him in his baptism as he's beginning his public ministry. Uh, he is described as being full of the Holy Spirit as he enters into being uh, tempted. And when he comes back from his temptation, he is described as coming back and beginning this ministry, this preaching ministry, itinerant ministry that we've described in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus' life for, for us is, is a pattern that we follow in being filled or needing the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our own lives uh, for ministry. Notice that he did not begin his public ministry until he experienced the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, or as he says in uh, uh, this passage here, the Holy Spirit had anointed him. And so his, his ministry was characterized by the Holy Spirit's power uh, throughout his ministry from this point forward. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, Luke later describes uh, Jesus' ministry this way in Acts 10, 37 through 38. You yourself know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
So Jesus' entire ministry is characterized by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And significantly, when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and turn the whole shooting match over his disciples, what does he tell them? Don't begin your public ministry until you too have experienced the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. If you hope to continue the ministry, if you hope to fulfill the commission that I have given you, don't just start running out and trying to do these things in your own strength. You, like I have modeled an example for you, will need the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Not only will you need the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, but I will give you the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. At, at, at the end of, of, of Luke, uh, he says to them, you will receive power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, as we transition into that book, he again says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, is always, always, always the necessary power behind gospel ministry. There is no effective gospel ministry. There is never any eternal, eternally significant work done apart from Holy Spirit anointing. And here is the good news. Each and every one of us that names the name of Christ has that very same power. There, there is no Holy Spirit light. Everything is light these days, isn't it? There, there's low calorie, light, you know, wh whatever the case may be. There, there, there's not a Holy Spirit light. Uh, there, there's not like near Holy Spirit or uh, the, the Holy Spirit that, that is available, the empowering presence of God that Jesus had is the very same third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, that we now have to empower us for gospel ministry. And nothing could be more encouraging as we're going to look at the purpose and calling of gospel ministry. Let us remember, like Jesus, that we are not being called to something that God has not given us the ability or the power to do. But he has given us the same Holy Spirit, the same empowering presence that he found necessary to have before he began his public ministry. So we have this power, and we need this power. We need this power for this reason, because we have a purpose. Jesus had a purpose, and we have a purpose. He says in verse 18, uh, the Lord has anointed me. Why? Just because it's cool to be anointed, so we can say we're anointed? No. He has anointed him to do something. He's anointed to do something. He is called to do something. Because there is something that God has called him and us to do, he has graced or anointed him and us to do it. Now, before we look at this, we, we, we got to step back for a moment and realize this and remind ourselves of this. Right now, we know much more than the people who were sitting in that synagogue back in the day that Jesus opened up the scroll and read to them from Isaiah and said these things. We know much more. When Jesus reads this passage and applies it to himself, they would have understood what Jesus was saying in, in the cultural context uh, of, of Old Testament 
Jewish uh, religion. In fact, we need to start actually what Jesus said at the end when he said and referenced the year of the Lord's favor. When, when they heard in that context the year of the Lord's favor, that was a messianic announcement to, to pronounce that the year of the Lord's favor had come was a messianic announcement. Uh, the year of the Lord's favor, or often uh, in the Old Testament seen as the day of the Lord, was to be ushered in when the Messiah came and would deliver them from and judge their enemies and also usher in a time of peace and prosperity or salvation for the nation of Israel in the kingdom of God. So, with that in mind, as we go through this passage, let's hear what Jesus is saying with their ears, but then let's also hear what Jesus is saying with our ears as well. We don't want to miss in hindsight the true glories of this passage as it relates to the gospel effect on each and every person who today names the name of Christ. So the first thing that Jesus says is this. He has been anointed or called to proclaim good news to the poor. Uh, good news, a uh, common Christian word, it's, it's in the evangel word group. It's, it's uh, what we get evangelism from or evangelical. Uh, it's, it's a word that, that is synonymous with the gospel. Uh, we could say today that, that Jesus came to proclaim uh, the gospel to people. Now, for their ears, when he says good news, they would have understood it as what I just described above, the good news of the coming kingdom of God in the form of the Messiah. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is actually said to preach the good news of the kingdom. And while that is certainly good news, uh, it wouldn't be the gospel as we know it today. It wouldn't be the good news that was only later revealed of the cross of Christ and the resurrection and ascension and the return of Christ. So they understood it as good news. We understand it as even greater news uh, than they would have then. And this good news is particularly for the poor. It is especially for the poor. Now, poor isn't merely a reference to material want, although it doesn't, it, it doesn't exclude uh, material want. Poor in that culture would have been anybody who found themselves in a disadvantaged condition. Women would have been considered poor. Uh, the uneducated would have been considered uh, poor. Certain vocations uh, the person would have been considered poor. Uh, the poor was anybody that not only was materially needy, but anyone that society looked down on. Uh, and anybody that was not in the in crowd, anybody that was on the outs would have been considered as poor. But in hindsight, um, we recognize far more important than any material or social condition is the spiritual poverty 
that each and every one of them and each and every one of us uh, experienced. What Jesus referred to in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is uh, the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is for those who recognize their spiritual poverty, that they are poor spiritually, their spiritual need. The gospel is for those who are humble enough to recognize I am a sinner and I need a savior. That, that, that poverty of, of spirit. And the, material, the materially rich are, are less likely to recognize their spiritual poverty. Uh, their, their, their material um, wealth can tend, at least for a while, to mask uh, the realities of uh, their spiritual poverty. So the, the one word I want to call to your attention as we unpack proclaiming good news to the poor, uh, that I, that I want to call to our attention particularly is that word poor. Because here's the reality. I don't know all of you. I don't know all of your backgrounds. But I'm, I'm guessing that most of you had either a, a, a middle class or an upper middle class upbringing. Many of you were brought up in, in the church um, you know, in Africa or Bolivia or a lot of places in the world, you would have been considered among the richest of uh, the rich. And so, in what sense were we poor in, in, in the sense that Jesus spoke about? I, I just, I want to be careful that we don't move on from this without, without marveling ourselves without taking a moment to stop and marvel, that, that we would take a moment to stop and marvel that we, in reality, were among the rich who may not have recognized our spiritual poverty, and yet in God's kindness, he chose you and he chose me to be saved. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Let me read you a, a story a large, prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of each year, all the members of the mission churches would come to the parent church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches, located in the slums of a major city, were some outstanding cases of conversion, thieves, burglars, and others. But all knelt as brothers and sisters side by side at the communion table. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail, where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and became a Christian worker. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The two walked along in silence for a few moments, and then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. Pastor nodded in agreement. A marvelous miracle of grace indeed. The judge then inquired, but to whom do you refer? The former convict, the pastor answered. And the judge answered, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The minister's surprised replied, you are thinking of yourself? I don't understand. You see, the judge went on, 
It is not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And he understood that Jesus could be his savior. And he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, and I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though in fact I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. Brothers and sisters, do you recognize today that I'm the greater miracle, that you're the greater miracle, that when the good news was proclaimed, Jesus enabled you to see the poverty of your spirit and opened up your heart to believe and trust in him. We are to proclaim good news to the poor and proclaim liberty to the captives. Uh, captives here would have been prisoners in a time of war. And oh my, how this would have resonated uh, with the people who were there because of the Roman oppression and years and years of oppression by others that they had uh, experienced. So when Jesus announces freedom for the captives there, yeah, the Roman oppression, that's right, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to crush these guys. And that is, that is true, but now we understand so much more than that. In John's gospel, Jesus says this, John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We live in a time of war. And I'm not talking about Afghanistan or the war against terrorism or any of those things. We live in a time of war, the constant ongoing war between the world, the flesh, the devil, and our own souls. And here's the reality. Each and every one of us was born into that war as slaves. Slaves of our own sin. And so for us, this, this truth of freedom is, is a glorious uh, truth when we contrast it with our former enslaved uh, condition. Uh, Jesus says in, in uh, John chapter 8, 31 through 36, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, the truth of the gospel. Truly see, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the son has set you free, you are free indeed. And exactly how did he do that? Well, he describes it to us in Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life, the gospel, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Revelation 1, 5, we're told, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The truth of the gospel proclaims freedom from the captivity and the enslavement to the cruelest of slave masters, our own sin. Thirdly, Jesus speaks of recovery of sight to the blind. Uh, when he said this, 
the, the, um, his hearers would have understood this as a sweeping promise of ushering in this kingdom age of peace and prosperity. Um, especially when he mentions the blind because of this. Up until the time that Jesus came, no blind person had ever had their eyes open. You look, look through the Old Testament. Lots of miracles, revel, uh, you know, resurrections, all kinds of miracles. No blind people. Um, until John chapter 9, Jesus opened the eyes of this blind man, and then it said this. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. It had never happened before. So when it happened, it would have been a sign to them that the kingdom, uh, the messianic kingdom, had in fact arrived. It was a sure sign. The eyes of a man born blind have been opened. It's never happened before. Must mean that the messianic kingdom has come upon us. But again, don't we now know so much more? Jesus does continue to heal. Uh, we heard a testimony this morning uh, about the healing grace of God for this, uh, for this little girl. He still, he still heals us physically, but more, he heals each and every one of us spiritually. He heals our spiritual blindness. We, we are born blind. It's like we're born enslaved. We're born blind. We're born both unable and unwilling to see the realities of the gospel and the realities of God's love and God's wrath. We, we, we lived our life clueless to the peril uh, that we were in, the, the, the wrath of God that was upon us. We couldn't, we couldn't see the peril and we couldn't see... Uh, the gospel. We couldn't see the answer to uh, our peril. We're told throughout scripture, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, that we were inhabitants of the dominion of darkness, that formerly we were darkened in our understanding. And Jesus says that that was a, gospel, uh, a blindness that only the gospel could heal. Only, only through the gospel could God open our eyes of we who were spiritually blind to the truth of the gospel. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. And I love what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, you, you got to catch what happened here. The, the same creative power that said, let there be light when there was no light and light just happened, that same creative power was the very same creative power of the gospel that said, let Josh, let Matthew, let John, let Jody, let the light of the gospel shine into their hearts so that they might see the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. We were spiritually blind and God opened our eyes through his creative power to enable us to see. Lastly, liberty to those who are oppressed. Uh, as I said before, the year of the Lord's favor was supposed to usher in this time of peace 
and prosperity for all. Uh, now, this would be, this would, they would have seen this differently as uh, liberty for the captives. Um, the, the, the oppressed would have been the, literally those broken in pieces, those, those who are shattered. That, that liberty or wholeness to those who are oppressed or broken or shattered. It, it seems to be what Isaiah is trying to capture a little bit later in Isaiah 61 when he says uh, that the Lord is anointed to bind up the brokenhearted. That the gospel comes and continues to come to those who are oppressed, those who are downhearted, to the depressed, to the discouraged, to the grieving, to the weary, to the sad, to those who are simply beaten down, and all of us at times get beaten down in a fallen world, uh, don't we? Uh, the gospel proclaims to us in, in those moments a, a, a liberty from those things. That, that's why it's so encouraging, again, that Chris read this morning, that after verses one and two that Jesus focused on here, in Isaiah 61, three, he says this, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, we know, both from experience and from the word of God, the gospel, God never, he never promises a struggle-free life, does he? He never promises a life free from suffering. All of us at times experience and feel like we're being trodden down, that, that, that life is just stepping all over us and, and trotting us down, uh, don't we? He, he, he never promises that we won't have those kind of struggles. What he promises is this, in the midst of the struggles, as we remember and lean into the gospel, that he'll give us beauty, he'll give us gladness, and he will give us praise in the midst of those circumstances. And that instead of having to faint, we would stand firm like a mighty oak in those most trying of times. So Jesus unpacks for us and now we see so much more than them, don't we? These wonderful promises and realities of the gospel for each and every one of us. And then verse 20 says, and, and, and we have this unbelievably dramatic moment. You gotta catch how dramatic what is about to happen is. Uh, there, there is this pregnant pause. You get the idea of deliberateness that, that, that Luke intentionally in telling the story is remembering, and the people that recounted are remembering the deliberateness of the moment. So think for a moment, if I'm up here preaching and all of a sudden I stop, this is awkward, isn't it? But, but that's, that's, that was what happened at the moment when Jesus sat down. What's he going to say next? What's going on? What's happening? So do you notice how Luke slowed down the action? He rolled up the scroll. 
and gave it back and sat down and the eyes of all were fixed on him. I'm guessing you could have heard a pin drop in the synagogue there that day. And when he does speak, if, if his actions were dramatic, his next words are off the scale in drama. Because his startling commentary on this passage is this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. And yet, one day, Jesus decides to open the eyes of Mickey Conley, 28 years old. And I, I can say with full assurance, I've never gotten over that. I've never gotten over it. Never understood it. Never gotten over it. Never ceased to ask why, even though I know I'm never going to get an answer. Um, I know one thing, it wasn't because um, God really needed me, and he said, oh, there's a gem, I need that. No. I hope you never get over it. I hope as Christians we never get over whether we have a long Christian lineage or no Christian lineage. I hope we never get over the marvels of the gospel, uh, the marvels of our poverty, our enslavement, our blindness, our oppression, and God shines the light of the gospel into our hearts been able to see and believe and experience all of these glorious benefits. Hope we never get over it. I also, as Chris prayed for mission today, I hope we'll be encouraged and emboldened um, by this. We have the same purpose and we have the same proclamation. We have the same good news to tell people. And we have the same power. Um, it, it's, it's not our effectiveness as a proclaimer that's the difference. It's the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, both in our lives and in our hearers, that is the difference. Only God can cause the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ to shine in someone's heart. But we have this calling to proclaim it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me just ask you this challenging question today to begin to think about. Who is it that's far from God but close to you? Who in your life, is it a family member, friend, neighbor, coworker, fellow student? Who is it that God, God has placed in your life that is close to you but far from God? God's placed that person close to you so that you may have the privilege of proclaiming this glorious gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit to that person. And may God give you the grace and the boldness to do so. And may God, may, may God give you, as individuals and as a church, may, may God just, like he revived in the day of John Wesley, may he revive this church this area, and may you see conversions. Uh, may the gospel go forth from this place in a way, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, where people are
converted and changed. Father, uh, oh, and you're going to sing a song, right? So come on up. <laughs> Sorry, I got the Holy Ghost there at the end and I forgot. Father, um, we do pray. We thank you for this precious church and we thank you for the glorious gospel. And I do pray, Father, um, may, may this very simple passage and simple sermon uh, may it resonate far beyond uh, my effectiveness, but may it just resonate in our hearts as we have had the opportunity to review the glorious truths of your gospel and the realities of how your gospel has affected us. And, and may, we, may we go and proclaim these truths in the power of your Holy Spirit and see fruit and revival. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and thank you for the privilege of being with you.